The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest science writer, Anil Ananthaswamy, is a former editor at New Scientist, and he has written also for National Geographic, Discover, and PBS Nova's The Nature of Reality, among many others. He's the winner of the British Association of Science Writers Award for Best Investigative Journalism, and his first book, The Edge of Physics, was voted Best Book of the Year in 2010 by Physics World. Ananthaswamy is here today to talk about his latest book, The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self, a book that publishes weekly in its starred review describes as follows. The Man Who Wasn't There skillfully inspects the bewildering connections among brain, body, mind, and society. Readers will be fascinated by Ananthaswamy's chronicles as he explores with kindness and keen intelligence the uncomfortable aberrations that reveal what it is to be human. Welcome to Health Watch, Anil Ananthaswamy. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So as a writer whose, whose last book was about physics, how, how did you come to write a book that, while grounded in science, is really also raising metaphysical questions about the nature of self? Um, I think uh, the, the physics book was really about uh, you know, being curious about uh, the cosmos, the external world. And when I wrote the physics book, uh, it was actually bookended by visits to monasteries. Uh, you know, the first chapter and the epilogue in the physics book are actually, uh, there are descriptions of uh, me going and uh, you know, spending some time at monasteries because I kind of metaphorically felt like what the physicists were doing with their telescopes up on mountaintops and what the monks were doing uh, were kind of similar. It's finally just a quest to understand, you know, where we come from, where we're going. And um, so th to me, this was uh, just a natural extension of that curiosity. Uh, instead of looking outward this time, I, I thought I'll, you know, take a look inward. So you start the man who wasn't there with an, an allegory from an ancient Buddhist text about a man who's devoured by ogres. Can you tell us a little bit about this fable and, and why you opened the book with it? Yeah, um, I, I opened the book with it um, mainly to illustrate the fact that, uh, you know, thinking about who we are, trying to answer the question, who am I, is not just a recent scientific endeavor. This is something people, uh, humans have been doing since we probably became self-aware. Um, and, and Buddhism is one of the you know, religions that really takes it to heart in terms of trying to understand who we are. Um, the allegory itself uh, is basically uh, <laughs> a very macabre one. Um, uh, a man encounters two ogres and, uh, and they, they bring a corpse with them. And uh, basically, uh, one of the ogres decides that uh, he needs to, he, he tears the arm of the man, and uh, the other ogre, uh, in retaliation, tears an arm off the corpse that they have and attaches it to the man. And this proceeds, um, you know, for every body part that the man has, it gets replaced by a body part from, from the corpse, and then the, the ogres eat the corpse and disappear. And the man is left wondering, well, who am I? Am I the body that I was born in, or am I the body that I have now, which is actually all body parts taken from the corpse? 
I mean, it's just a way of illustrating the Buddhist question of, you know, is the self real? Is the self your body? And so essentially the man starts asking those questions. And in some sense, the allegory sets up the rest of the book for me very nicely. So would it be fair to say that the premise of the man who wasn't there is to examine the self in a negative sense, in the sense by looking at people who have abnormal senses of self from a medical perspective, and then inferring back from what we learn to what a normal sense of or a more common sense of self might be? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to use the word negative only because I think the people who are uh, suffering from these aberrations, you know, they they are experiencing uh, something else, but it's not like um, it's lessened in some way. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, instead of using the word negative, I would probably just think of it as, uh, you know, alterations to to the self that we normally perceive ourselves to be. Um, and, and, yeah, the the, the point is exactly uh, as you said it, is that by looking at how uh, our experience of being what we are changes in certain conditions like Alzheimer's or autism or schizophrenia, uh, the hope is that we can understand how the brain constructs the self in the first place. It's almost uh, impossible to get a sense for what our self might be uh, unless we start looking at situations where, you know, something goes slightly awry and and you get a sense that, okay, this is not one monolithic thing called the self, but actually a a collection of neural processes that have to constantly be working uh, to give us the sense of who we are. Well, maybe a good place to begin uh, as a segue from the the Buddhist allegory of the man with the the body parts from a corpse is the uh, body integrity identity disorder. Uh, Tell tell us... um, what that is and and what you discover in in spending time with people who have this condition so it's a it's a very um, intriguing condition in the sense that it's not something most of us would ever experience it's a very rare condition um, and it's a condition in which people feel that some part of their body doesn't belong to them now if you were uh, to look at you know if you were to just pay attention to your leg or your arm you would have no doubt in your mind that it's your own. In fact, it's not even something we think about. It's an implicit feeling that we have, that we own our body, or or rather that our body feels like ours. Um, and in BIID, body integrity identity disorder, you, you can have the feeling that some part of your uh, body, usually it's the extremities of limbs, uh, is not yours. Um, and the best way kind of to understand what this might be is like is to think of a, a mirror condition, which is uh, phantom limbs, which is which is something most people would be aware of. This is what happens when somebody has had an unfortunate accident and has had to get an amputation, so a leg or an arm has been amputated. And some some people, after an amputation, continue to feel the presence of a limb. And it's very clear that they're not really feeling the physical limb because the physical limb is gone, and yet they perceive their limb to exist. Uh, and in some sense, BID is, you, you can think of it as the opposite, where your limb is fine, uh, you know, physiologically healthy, but something about the way the limb is represented in the brain has changed or altered, leading to the perception that that limb is not yours. Um, and, um, you know, I, like you said, I did um, spend time talking to people who suffer from this condition, and um, it can be quite debilitating, especially if they've been suffering from it uh, for uh, you know a few decades, as usually is the case, before they find out that they're not alone, um, you know, in, in in the world, there are other people who are also experiencing the same thing, 
I remember one um, one person I talked to. He he said something like, you know, uh, about the leg that didn't feel like his. He said, my soul doesn't extend into that leg. And uh, and there are very many people who will use that kind of terminology um, uh, to describe that uh, that condition. And in that rare condition where you believe uh, an extremity does isn't belong to you, your arm or your leg does not belong to you, um, they often want to get amputation and and actually uh feel better having gotten an amputation is that is that right i think that is the paradoxical thing that uh you know if if they suffer from it for a long while they you know eventually they feel like the only way to reconcile this mismatch between what they perceive their body to be and what the body actually is 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 to get an amputation or or some sort of surgical procedure to alter the body and uh, and and they do say things like i feel complete now i feel whole now even though you know from a very objective standpoint when you're you know thinking about what has happened to the body you've lost a limb but in terms of your perception of oneself uh, you're feeling more complete and more whole and that is uh, very paradoxical but that's exactly how they uh, describe their uh, situation we're talking today with science writer Anil Ananthaswamy about his book, The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self. You, you mentioned in the book, Anil, uh, an experiment with a rubber hand uh, mm-hmm. to elucidate uh, some very strange science around uh, self-perception and, and self-identity. C- could you talk a little bit about that? Experiment. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's uh, sort of uh, you know in the, in a similar vein as uh, BID that we were just talking about the idea that your, the perception of your body is something that is quite malleable. It's it's we, we take our perception of our body to be kind of solid and never question the fact that this is something that the brain has to actually put together moment by moment. Uh, and the rubber hand illusion very clearly shows uh, this, um, that this is so. You can you can do this experiment at home. You, you know you go onto Amazon and order uh, uh, a rubber hand. Um, it's, uh, it just looks like uh, you know a hand except it's made of rubber. And you place the rubber hand on a table in front of you. Place uh, say your left hand next to the rubber hand, and between the rubber hand and your real hand, place a screen so that you can see only the rubber hand and you can't see your real hand. Now, have someone take two paintbrushes and stand in front of you and stroke both your real hand and your rubber hand simultaneously at exactly the same places at the same speed, um, you know, on different fingers, but, you know, basically mirroring the action on on your real hand uh, on the rubber hand. And remember now, you're only looking at the rubber hand. You cannot see your real hand. So there are two things happening now. You're, You're getting a visual input, which is, the rubber hand being uh, stroked by the paintbrush, uh, and you're getting a sense of touch coming from the paintbrush touching your real hand. And uh, it's it's quite amazing that about two-thirds of the people in about two minutes after this process is started will feel something quite amazing. They will feel the, the touch of the paintbrush on where the rubber hand is located. They will actually feel like they're sensing touch at the location of the rubber hand. Uh, your brain takes ownership of the rubber hand because it's being fed conflicting information. It's being fed visual input, which is, you know, the brush on the rubber hand, and it's being fed uh, tactile sensations coming from the real hand. And it so happens that uh, the brain prefers, you know, or, or trusts vision more than it trusts the sense of touch. And it decides that, oh, 
the touch must be coming from the location of the rubber hand and, and ends up embodying the rubber hand. And this is a very, very strange thing to experience if you are one of the lucky ones to experience it. Not everyone will, but, you know, 70% of people will, and that's quite a large number. And it points at the ways in which self is is constructed neurally uh, or neurologically. And and I just wanted to go to how you end the book. You talk about a trip where you go to Varanasi, the holy city of the Hindus, and then on to Sarnath, where uh, the Buddha gave his first sermon. Uh, and then go into this this old notion in Buddhism of, of non-self or no-self, mm-hmm. and how a lot of the new science, some scientists are on the side of the idea of no self and other right. scientists are not even the ones, even if they both accept this, this new science. Um, but we're not, when we're talking about the absence of self, we're not talking about the ab- absence of a narrative self of a phenomenological self. Can you, no. can you distinguish between those two and, and what people are saying when they say the pos- there's the possibility of the absence of self? Yeah, so uh, like you said, the the phenomenal self is not an illusion in the sense that, you know, we all experience being a self, and and there is no doubt that that experience is real. The question is, is there there a self that will, you know, which which is responsible for experiencing uh, all that we experience? Is there something that will persist, for instance, after the brain and body are dead, Uh, or did it was it there before the brain and body came into existence, and will it be there afterwards? And that part, I think most scientists and philosophers will clearly now agree that, okay, that doesn't, that, that's not the case, that the self in that context doesn't really uh, exist, and it's not really something solid that's, you know, separate from the mind and, uh, separate from the brain and body and mind. Now, uh, the, the, the narrative self, which you mentioned, is, is the story that we all are. And it, it's very clear if you look at things, uh, if you look at a condition like Alzheimer's or uh, there are other situations also where the narrative self starts disintegrating. And uh, it becomes very clear that the narrative self, the story that we tell ourselves about who we are, the story that we tell others about who we are, that is something that depends on uh, memory formation, long-term memory formation, and it's something that the brain needs to put together and and you can lose it. You you can you can lose your narrative in the context of Alzheimer's. But then the question is, uh, you can still experience being someone either with a narrative or with a scrambled narrative or without a narrative. So there is still an I that seems to exist below the level of what can be called the narrative self. Now the question is, what is that I that is the experiencing self or the self that is the subject of experiences, and that's where uh, Buddhists uh, will say that even that is just something that appears to be so, that if you were to actually go looking for the self that is the subject of experiences, even that you will find that there's nothing there, uh, whereas some philosophers, modern philosophers and you know, uh, philosophers of your would, would say that, no, I think we need, to, uh, we need to posit the presence of at least some very basic minimal self that is the subject of experiences, and then the brain constructs a larger narrative self on top of that. So that the distinction is at that level. They're really fussing about the notion of the subject of an experience. Well, let me talk briefly or ask a question briefly about uh, the interface between uh, the self and a, a individual culture's perception or belief in self. Uh, when I was reading your book, I... 
I thought of an, an earlier show that I did with an organization in Oregon called the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, and they do early intervention for teenagers who've had a psychotic episode uh, using science based on uh, non-Western cultures that do early uh, community and family-based intervention with someone who's had a psychotic episode that show good results to prevent schizophrenia from developing. Um, what have you uncovered, if anything, around uh, the the interplay between individual and community and self and the group in relationship to uh, medicine and self-dumb? Um, it, I think it, there's a big, big interplay. Uh, I didn't specifically address that in the book, but it's very clear that the self that each one of uh, each one of us is is very much a product of not just the biology that we inherit, uh, but also the culture that we grew up in, in our, our parenting, our, our, our social structures. So, so if if some disorder uh, or a condition like schizophrenia can be thought of as a disturbance of the self, then by definition, uh, the way the disorder will manifest itself will differ from culture to culture because. If it's a disorder of the self, then the way the self gets constructed in each culture being different, the way the disorder will, uh, you know, um, the, the severity of it, the outcomes uh, to treat for treatments, etc., all of that will uh, will have uh, a bearing, you know, or, or rather the culture will have a bearing on all of those things. Um, it's very clear that uh, this, this becomes very clear in something like depression, because depression, you know, is really at some very basic level... Uh, a disturbance of how we feel about ourselves. Right? It's a disorder of the self, and in uh, in highly individualistic societies, uh, it can be felt more acutely than in a more collective society. Uh, and uh, so, it, I think it it makes sense for us to pay attention to how the culture is influencing who we are, and then you know um, tailor our treatments accordingly. Have you followed any of the research, Anil, on on the way writing may or may not affect the self as a writer and a science writer? I, I know that they've done a lot of research on writing and putting thoughts into words with regards to post-traumatic uh, stress therapy. I, I haven't followed that. Um, no, not not in any particular way. I mean, I can just speak from personal experience that I think writing is very grounding uh, for those of us who like to do it and want to do it. Um, and in, in some sense, I think it, it gives us a better handle on our own narrative self and, uh, and kind of deepens our self-awareness. And that can that can be helpful. It, it, you can also get very neurotic. So I am <laughs> not sure that it's, uh, right. it's only always positive. Writers are, you know, uh, they, they can be neurotic. I, I know that uh, from personal experience, both within myself and, you know, my colleagues. So I think it's a double-edged sword. But if done with care and balance as with anything else, I think it can be very helpful. Well, as a way to end the the show today, what would you what would be a takeaway for a listener or a reader of the man who wasn't there, uh, or some takeaways around personal well being uh, or insight uh, from this new science um, that calls into question some of the um, ways in which we view the self as so stable, um, and some of the old philosophy from from Buddhism around no self. Are there some some 
things you could touch upon around uh, some wisdom to garner from that? Yeah, I think I think the you know the the scientific the science and the traditions like Buddhism are converging in, in their notion of what the self is. Uh, you know, for most part, they agree that much of what we take to be solid and unified and uh, you know not malleable is actually uh, otherwise. You know, the narrative self, the sense we have of our own body, uh, the sense we have of being agents of our actions. All of these things seems to be things that the brain has to construct and in that sense it is not real in the sense you know it, it is something that the brain is putting together moment by moment and uh, I think in terms of personal well-being and uh, you know how we live our lives just seeing that the things we tend to hold on to too strongly are actually things that can be let go and and uh, you know things that can be let go in the sense that we, we can see through the construction somehow whether it's just, you know, you, you mentioned writing, uh, it could be meditation, it could be just, uh, you know, taking long walks and paying attention to oneself, uh, whatever it is that one does in order to become self-aware, but being becoming aware of the constructed nature of most things about the self and becoming aware of the fact that this solidity is actually somewhat uh, of an illusion. Um, and... Uh, and hence, not holding on to those things too strongly can only be beneficial, um, you know, because a, a lot of our stress comes from having conceptual ideas about who we are and then wanting to live up to those ideas or, or you know, uh, just uh, taking those things as immutable and um, and just seeing seeing those things for what they are and maybe stepping back a little bit can, can only be helpful to our well-being. And we're talking today, me, me in Portland, Oregon, and you in, in Bangalore, India, and you're you're living part of the time in India and part of the time in New York. Is that change, going back and forth, change your own conception of self? It does. And I, I actually, it was not, it's not New York, it's uh, Berkeley, California. Oh, sorry. But, uh, yeah, no, but, uh, you know, it, it does, there is, there is very much uh, um, a shift in perception of oneself as I move back and forth. Uh, uh, India is a somewhat more collective society than and than the US. Um though things are changing here too and uh you know I think the the notion of an individual has morphed within India also uh, over the last two decades. But uh, but there is def- uh, there is definitely a, a change in how one feels about oneself as you know as you move back and forth between two cultures that are so different. Um and they both have positives uh, and negatives in terms of you know what the self is perceived to be. Um, and depending on again uh, how you deal with it and what you make of it, it can be it can be both good and bad. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Anil. Thank you. It was my pleasure, David. Thank you very much. We are talking today to science writer Anil Ananthaswamy, whose book, "The Man Who Wasn't There: Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self." 